This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Kevin Frisch, CMO of WAG. Kevin also previously served as the head of performance marketing and CRM for North America at Uber and has been a CMO multiple times, including for companies like GSN Games and Snapfish. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Kevin talks about the unique challenges and opportunities of marketing a marketplace. He also gives his best advice for a first-time CMO, talks about his favorite campaigns he's ever been a part of, and much more. A big thank you to Kevin for coming on the show. Please enjoy this interview with Kevin Frisch, CMO of WAG. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org, and we have in studio, Kevin, what's going on? How's it going? Great to be here. It's great to have you. This is a particularly fun episode. We have a dog culture here with Toasty, our office dog running around, and we're huge fans of WAG and huge fans of you. So we're going to get into uh, a lot of the really cool stuff you're doing at WAG. But first, how did you get into marketing? Uh, I started out way back. I'm a little older than I look. I have, I have great skin. I, I'm sure your audience <laughs> can see that. I did consulting for a while, and then I started doing pricing work with some companies, and I ended up doing finance for marketing departments. And I spent a decent amount of time doing that. And slowly over time, I said, wait, why do the boring finance part in the marketing departments? Let's just be more of an analytical person involved directly in marketing. So I shifted from finance to marketing. As as some of the best marketers do. You know, it's funny. There's so many marketers that have a different path. And the financial path, I think, really positions you well to be next to the business, right? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when I'm talking to sort of people, there's always like these two paths. There's the marketers who are very much brand focused, kind of, you know, they come in with the, you know, the black turtlenecks and kind of explain these mysterious things. And then there's the folks who are the other path who are much more quantitative, like, you know, I'm not really sure what works and what doesn't, but we can test it and figure it out. Yeah. And with technology, it's been kind of the the accelerator to giving the analytical folks the like ammo they need and the storytelling folks the ammo they need um, to do that. For our listeners who might not know, can you share more about WAG? Yeah, uh, WAG is basically uh, an on-demand dog walking platform. So, you know, you're, you're at work and you realize you're going to need to work late. Or even if you have a sort of a regular recurring thing that you need to do, uh, we also sort of can walk your dog, whether it's during the day or during the evening. We give you a lockbox so we can access your house. You don't need to be home and, we, you know, walk your dog. And you've had some really interesting stops at companies like Uber, GSN, Snapfish, Tell me a little bit why you were so excited about the opportunity to be CMO WAG. Well, the first thing is I love marketplace businesses. They have this beautiful complexity to them, which many days just hurts my brain and makes it very hard to do things. Um, but other times are really exciting. And then, you know, WAG in particular, in addition to being marketplace, it's just nice to be part of the company that's trying to 
make this experience of owning a dog and having a pet just be easier. So it's more fulfilling, more people can do it. And I just, I just really enjoy being part of that. You know, as someone who owns a dog and we have an office dog, obviously that we mentioned as well, shout out to Toasty and I, and I watch Toasty relatively often. There is so much like, you know, talk about customer pain points. There's so much pain around opportunities where dog owners feel like they can't do something, right? Or they feel guilty about being late or going away for the weekend or those type of things. You kind of get that hamstrung effect. It seems like it's really valuable kind of place to be a marketer because there's such like an obvious like love for the animal, but you also have this like guilt side of things, which it kind of sucks sometimes. Exactly. We try to not do guilt marketing, but you know, it, it can work pretty well. And it, there's almost this, you know, pet parents have this realization, this feeling of guilt, but they don't necessarily say, wait, I can actually solve that yeah. by kind of using a company like WAG to do it. They just sort of feel bad and come home early and have their dogs not have an optimal life. Whereas, you know, just making sure people understand, hey, there are options out there. They're not expensive. They're easy to use. Why not do that? Yeah. And I think the thing that is really cool about the business for me as someone who you know is a dog owner, that it's just in time and scheduled, right? And or, right? And I think that a lot of the times you as a pet owner, just things come up, right? It's the same, you know, same thing as any, anything in life is like, you have a, you have to work late or you have to do this or something or horrible traffic accident. The fact that you can then, you know, take action on that immediately. Whereas in the past, you're like, oh, can I call my mom? Is she where is she at? Oh, she's stuck in traffic. Like all those different things that come into play. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's even, you know, what we see from more and more of our pet parents is they, don't use us when they need to. They use us when they'd like to. So yeah, maybe your dog doesn't need to take a walk if you're going to be out, you know, you won't be home till seven, but why not? You know, it's better for your dog. They get more exercise. They have a better day. And they probably have a new fun friend to play with. Exactly. Uh, So do you feel like, and for those of you listening, you may not know this, but it is one of the questions on our questionnaire when you come to work for the company of, is it okay if you walk the office dog? That's a real thing. You know, some people don't want to walk the office dog. That's fine. But shout out to Catherine, our customer success manager, always ends up walking, walking nice. toasty. Nice. Um, this type of a marketplace where there is, you know, this huge explosion of the gig economy, there's huge explosion of people who can figure out to w- make money in new ways, especially doing some, something like walking a dog, which is really fun. And you have millions and millions of Americans who who own dogs. 60 million households, if you're counting. Yeah, there you go. Tell me a little bit more about like what it's like marketing this marketplace in particular and some of the things that are really exciting. I think uh, there's a few things that make WAG as a marketplace business a little different. The first one I would say is that the dog walkers really love their job. Uh, you know, a lot of them are, you know, they're, they're dog lovers who often can't own a dog because maybe they don't have the time, maybe kind of where they're living doesn't allow it. Uh, and they look forward to walking the dogs and it's also great exercise. So I would say compared to a lot of other gig economies where on the supply side, as it's called, it's always challenging. There's a lot of issues. You're always trying to get more supply. Our walkers actually really enjoy walking and actually look forward to it. And of course, they need to get paid and expect to get paid. And we do that well as well, but they really like it. That is a huge differentiator. 
But it's funny because it's such a massive need, right? It's like, it is the ultimate, you know, one plus one equals three scenario for a marketplace when the people who are doing it love it, other than I guess a little, uh, little wear and tear on their shoes. Uh, not much of a, an expenditure from the, from the walkers standpoint. Exactly. Exactly. So are there certain things that, you know, as you look at positioning this company that you're so like signals in the market, things that you're looking, you know, you talked about, you don't want to do, you know, necessarily like guilt advertising. How do you view marketing at WAG? I think for us, the, the really interesting opportunity is, you know, right now, everyone who kind of realizes they need this sort of service, like we're getting customers, we're growing really well, it's all happening. The ultimate thing I would like to get to is that if you own a dog, you should have a dog walker and it should be WAG, right? Like everyone should do it. No, you don't need to, but like you don't need to exercise either, but you do, Yeah. right? Well, I don't, but anyway, but we all should, right? So as part of owning a dog, you should have a walker who comes and gives that dog a little exercise, a little playtime during the day, right? And so that for me is a really interesting challenge. How do I unlock this where kind of all 60 million households that have a pet or have a dog kind of say, yeah, this is part of dog ownership. Like just by like getting dog toys. Of course you do that. You don't have to, but of course you do. And this just becomes part of that. Do you have any data yet on like dog breed by like, if you own a Husky, you should have four hours a day of walking, you know? We actually are. The answer is I, we don't have anything we've put out there yet. But we are starting to track kind of like which sort of dogs take the longer types of walks and which yeah. ones get the shorter. The other thing we're tracking is um, which dogs take the most bathroom breaks during a walk. Yeah. So we're going to start to sort of put out some of this information. Oh, I'm so that's so exciting. But it's funny, like I, I love Border Collies. They're just amazingly cool. But I could never get a Border Collie because I'm like the amount of energy required. But now with Wag, I could. I, I, can, I can check it exactly. out. Exactly. We want to make it easy for anyone who wants a dog to get one. See, that's interesting. And I think part of the fact that the people who are walking them in a lot of cases are people who can't, you know, figure it out, I think is also fun. What do you hear from like the walking side? Again, you know, from the walking side, they, when we ask them, hey, you know, what could we do better and things like that? You know, the thing they want is, hey, you know, we'd like more business. Yeah. We'd like more people. Great. That's true. But generally, they are sort of quite happy with doing this. Uh, they, they sometimes want to sort of be able to schedule better. It's like, hey, it would be nice if we could, if I could group all my walks together. Is there a way to kind of have more interaction with the pet parents mm -hmm. such that I could say, hey, I have, you know, a walk I'm doing at one and one at four and one at two. Could I kind of move the four o'clock one to one thirty so I can organize it a little better? So that kind of stuff. But overall, they're just very satisfied. What about like walking multiple dogs and things like that? We've uh, looked at that, you know, right now, what WAG offers is sort of a single, a single walker with a dog. If you have two dogs in your household, we'll obviously walk them both because the walks are basically, you know, half an hour, sometimes a little longer. It turns out to be a little bit difficult to pick up a dog because remember, a lot of our walkers are on foot, pick up yep. a dog, go to the next house, secure the first dog somehow when you go into the second house. Yep to get that dog. Now you have two dogs. Well, now pretty much the first dog's walk is kind of running over. It's not that easy to do. And look, a lot of people like to sort of have that very personal service. Well, and totally. I mean, my, my dog doesn't, uh, she struggles to play. She plays nice with other dogs, but she seemed she, very nice when I she, walked in here. Just, Oh no, that's Toasty. So that's oh, not my dog. Oh, that's not your dog. Yeah. yeah oh, that's, the, I see. that's office. Dog. Office dog. Yeah. Right. That's, uh, our, our CEO's dog. 
But yeah, no, she, I mean, she's a little older and she's kind of lived her life, uh, you know, got attacked a few times. She's like, I'm, I'm good on this, on this whole thing. So that makes sense. When it comes to like marketing challenges, were there, were there things that perhaps you learned from your time at Uber or lessons that you bring to WAG in terms of marketing a marketplace? I would say for marketplace, kind of knowing which of sort of your tools to use, depending on what the issues are, like, you know, there is doing, for example, more acquisition. There's doing more promotions to either side of the market. There's doing incentives to existing customers on either side of the market. And when you're looking at a particular challenge at a moment in time in the business, getting a sense of which tool to apply where is something that Uber got very good at. And that's one of the things we're bringing to WAG. The other thing that, you know, I, I saw at Uber was uh, the importance of brand, I would say. Uber, fantastic growth, very, very popular. And then for those of you who might remember, we had a, a series of mishaps. Uh, you, you had Delete Uber, you had the Susan Fowler blog, you have, uh, you know, you had our, our, our former CEO kind of having a, a pretty strong interaction with the driver. And what happened is all these customers who, who really liked the Uber product suddenly realized they didn't have a strong connection with the brand. Uh, and so you had a lot of defections from Uber because you know, we hadn't created that connection. So one of the things, you know, we're really very conscious of at WAG is how do we make sure that in addition to people loving the service, which they do, they sort of build that strong affinity with the brand. And they, look, we're a new company. We're still kind of early stage startup, but that's one of the things we really need to be aware of. Yeah, I think it's a really critical insight. So many times, especially with a product-driven company, you have this new thing that like really com is completely different from anything that's out there. Like the use case of I'm standing on a street corner with my hand up in the air with no idea of whether or not a cab is going to come to, I know exactly when a cab is going to come. It's going to pick me up. It's going to take me to my destination and I know how much it costs and it's going to be like built seamlessly is like, of course people loved that, right? right. It's right. like this brand new thing in the world. Same thing with WAG where it's like, hey, I'm, I want to go straight from work to my date. I need someone to walk my dog. Like it's before that you had no kind of recourse. Right. So what are some of those things that you can do to make the brand experience or the customer experience something that's unique to WAG? Yeah, look, there's, you know, I can't sort of talk about all our roadmap, but, you know, when you think about it, there's the pure core offering that it's on demand, that it's a dog walk, but there's a lot of things we can surround that with particular functionality within the app that creates that connection. How we treat our walkers, quite frankly, is yeah. very important that pet parents know that we treat our walkers very well uh, is very important as well. We're also, we have some initiatives that are going to really help build more of a kind of a community around folks who kind of own dogs and allowing them to sort of connect better with each other. So all these things are sort of layering on top of the product to create more of that affiliation. Yeah. And I think, especially in these marketplace businesses, like your brand is whatever, you know, the service provider is, you know, or at the tip of the spear, right? Whether it's the driver, whether it's the the postmate, the, you know, whatever it is. Like right. if the person shows up and does a fantastic job and talks glowingly about how they like to use the service, then that's getting told, you know, millions of times a month potentially. If they all have a bad experience, like your word of mouth marketing from the people who are there is going to be horrific. That's exactly right. And, you know, even though most of our actual walks occur when the pet parent is not home because that's what a key be a benefit of the service is. 
most all of them have met their walkers at some point. Mm -hmm. So there definitely is that connection. There definitely is that communication. So it's so important for us, for those walkers to sort of say, hey, yeah, I love doing this, right? And that makes the pet parents feel better. What about, you know, things like famous pet parents, celebrity endorsements, things like that. It seems like there's, and, and even we can go down the line to, celebrity animals because there's, you know, Instagrams and all this sort of stuff that have, you know, millions of followers. How do you view kind of the influencer landscape? Look, I think influencers can be very important. I, I do think that our primary demographic is is sort of not what the primary demographic is of people sort of who respond to influencers. There's there's some overlap there, but influencers tend to focus on much younger, younger folks. Mm. That said, uh, we do find as we're doing more in the influencer space that it is it is very important because it allows us to sort of explain how this use case can be different, like I said, than just the need, but it's it's more the want. So we're starting to work with more influencers to really sort of say, hey, you can just do this because it's a nice thing to do to your dog, not because you have to. Yeah, that's a completely different positioning than, than I have traditionally heard for this sort of thing. I mean, I think that a lot of pet parents have especially if it's their first one, have like no idea how to do this. And especially you look at like younger generation, you know, you got your first job, you're finally starting to make some money. You have a little bit of disposable income. You're like, hey, I'm going to go get a dog. Maybe, you know, you have a new significant other and like we're going to get a dog together sort of thing. There's kind of a lot of moments in there where, you know, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You know, you can read the blogs, you can read the articles. Is there some amount of just like education of the market? Like, I feel like, generally speaking, we have no idea like how to, like there's no kind of how-to guide. And then the closest thing is if you end up getting, you know, go to doggy school or something like that. I mean, that was for me, the most critical part was like, I went to get pet training and like learned how to be a pet parent because we had an awesome instructor. Have you, are you thinking about like education and, and content in that way? Yeah. So a couple of things. First, when, when we get a kind of a new pet parent or even a new walker, uh, where we're overhauling a lot of what we do to sort of not just say, here's how you use WAG, but also here are some just general how to take care of your dog and how to be a good pet parent. Uh, we also have a, a, a special thing we're rolling out for pet parents who are, are new pet parents or new pet parents to a, a puppy. And yeah. so all these things, again, there's obviously how you use WAG, but there's also like, here are some tips and tricks you can use to sort of make sure. And like I said, we also are building some products that will allow pet parents within, you know, a geographic area to connect with each other to sort of seek sort of advice and insights and stuff like that. What about like the broader kind of like shelter community? And, you know, we've, we've actually interviewed um, SPCA International on this, on marketing trends before, you know, there's a lot of education and awareness around like in that community about like what's going on locally. It seems like with such a powerful platform with like such like a reach that you do, it seems like there's a lot of play to just really get people connected into the different spots of what's going on. Yeah, we, we have relationships, a lot of them with greater good. We, we sort of donate a, a certain um, amount per walk that we do to some of the organizations. So absolutely, there's a lot of interaction there. And again, an opportunity to really sort of educate kind of both both parties, both the pet parents and these organizations on sort of how we can sort of help. I want to switch gears a little bit to one of the other positions that you held as CMO Snapfish. I think it was, I was junior year, senior year at West Point. 
and was using Snapfish religiously because we were taking a lot of photos back then, uh, especially like of, you know, random stuff, sending it to my, to my mom, sending it to my grandma, doing all that stuff. I'm so curious back then of like this really interesting time when you were there where iPhone wasn't, I think probably got iPhone one probably got released. Yes. yes. I remember I didn't get the first one because I, and I got iPhone three was the first one I got. Yeah. Yes. Go, Other right? people had the iPhone one. There was this new thing called Twitter. Yeah, not really sure. Go. Yep. So it was a really interesting time in the market where most people had digital cameras at this point. Tons of photos were being taken. They were not getting put anywhere. And then nobody wanted to go, you know, down the street to wherever it was. Walgreens to get their photos developed or printed out. I'm just so curious about, you know, what, what you were working on and any memorable stories. Yeah, I, you know, Snapfish was very interesting. Uh, there had been this Snapfish sort of rode the wave of digital printing uh, when it first started, where everyone sort of started doing digital photography and then realized they they were all just trapped on some yeah. you know, memory card, very small memory card at the time. And so Snapfish really sort of rode that wave of, of printing them. And when I joined that sort of a lot of people had crossed over and had used digital. So it's like, what's the next wave of growth and how do you drive that? And it was a couple of things. One of them was really saying, look, you can do more than just do prints. So there was a lot around basically photo books and things like that, really sort of helping organize these memories. The other thing we want to do is really honestly encourage people to print. Obviously it was good for us, but even now when, when you sort of look at how many photos you have from these certain periods of your life, like they're all on some hard drive somewhere, yeah. maybe like I even tell my friends right now, I have a, I have a two and a half year old kid. I would tell them, take a bunch of pictures and just print them, yeah. just print them. Yeah. Throw them in a shoebox, whatever it is, but just print them. Cause 30 years from now, you know, you don't know what's going to be around, but those prints will survive. So even, you know, I'm very tech oriented, but that's one thing where getting that physical copy really makes a difference. Well, one of the things my mom is religious about this of like every family event, she just takes all the photos and makes a book yep. and, and gives it to all the kids. And so now, and they're, they're so thin now. Right. So it's like, you know, I have like 19 of these books on my bookshelf, but it takes up like probably a foot and a half of space. Like, it's not like they're it's not enormous, but you go back through and you're like, it's pretty cool to look back through these because I'm not exactly like scrolling back through Instagram or right. But that's the thing. And you don't, you don't realize that until you, you sort of say, Hey, wait a second. There's like eight years of my life where there's really no record because I took them all with this phone. I, I put them on this site, which I don't even know how to get to doesn't even exist. One of the interesting things is actually one of our most successful promotions we had. And it got us on Oprah was for, you know, your kids drawings and stuff like that. Just take photos of them and put them in a photo book. Yeah. So instead of trying to save all these crinkly things on your fridge, which eventually end up in a garage in a box, well, you can actually create little photo books with all your, you know, again, your kids' drawings and really save them. That's a great idea. How yeah. have I never heard of that? Man, that's a great idea. So you, so you ran that campaign? How did yeah, that was, uh, that, that was, you know, the, the proudest moments for marketers is when you take down your servers, right? So that was one of the ones that we... Um, we actually sort of had run into some of, you know, Oprah's producers at, at some conference and sort of, you know, they were talking to us and we sort of explained this use case, the one I just explained to you. And they were like, wow, that's, that's amazing. And it's like, yeah, not that many people use it for that, but they really should. And they were so taken by the idea that kind of they, they you know, they, they talked about Snaffich on their show and they sort of mentioned this is the use case. And it like just destroyed all our sort of infrastructure for a couple of weeks. It was, it was amazing. It's really, I mean, that's like product marketing one-on-one, right? Yeah. It's like, 
take the use case that people don't know about mm-hmm. and get that in front of, you know, people in a creative way. Yeah. I mean, like, it, you know, same thing, same thing with WAG with like, did you know that X type of dog goes, uh, goes to the bathroom more than the other dog? Like you're actually educating and yeah. informing people of just how to, you know, live their life. But your product is, is at the end. That's one of the solutions. Yep, exactly. You talked about one campaign, you know, in our prep that you lowered the price of one of the products. Can you share that? Sure. Um, Snapfish used to be the standard price of 12 cents a print. It all seems so quaint now. We, we spent months deciding, do we want to lower it to nine cents a print? Because the idea was that, you know, we potentially would have such volume growth because people are very fairly price sensitive to the, this price. And Single so, to double digits. Yes, yeah, see, exactly. It's, it's a tale cents. as old as time. It is, yeah. it is. And it, it had an amazing effect on the business, really kind of, kind of grew that part of the business quite a bit. There were others within the industry that were really kind of upset because they felt we were commoditizing, uh, commoditizing the industry. But for us, what we really try and do is basically have more, really more democratizing than commoditizing, right? Let's, let's make this available so everyone can afford to do it and just print more. Well, you know, but I think it's funny that I think a lot of the competitors, when you do certain things that, you know, when you drive your, driving your competitors crazy, it's probably a sign that like you're either doing something really dumb or really right. <laughs> and I maybe mean, it's uh, both. Yeah, a little bit of each. That's what I say. Were you like split testing? How are you doing that? What were the type of like, were you paying for digital ads? Were you buying TV spots? What were you doing? So that one was actually very hard to split test. We knew the impact that doing pricing on a promotional basis would do. So we had all that information. But the question is, what would sort of an everyday low price strategy? So again, we built out a bunch of scenarios, but we we basically had to just sort of jump in and do it. There was only so much you could test, again, a, a lower everyday price. Dude, what about existing customers? Were people like happy, upset? I mean, I guess existing customers are going to keep buying anyway. Like, you know, this was across the board. This was for existing. It's not just an acquisition campaign. This was for existing and new customers. Wow. So basically existing customers suddenly found out it's like, hey, going forward from now, it's nine cents a print. And again, their volumes went up quite a bit as well. I want to talk about GSN. You were CMO there for a little over four years, right? A long time. Tell me, I mean... We, we've talked a little bit about games on the on the podcast before, but this was a time of epic growth for the gaming community with the rise of mobile. would love to would love to pick into some of the best practices that you saw marketing games. So this one was really interesting. I uh, you know our, our main products were basically slots, sort of mobile slot machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't gambling because you actually couldn't win any money. Uh, you could you, you had tokens, which we gave you a certain number of free tokens per day. And then if you ran out of those tokens, you could buy additional tokens. That's how we monetized. It wasn't through ads. Uh, and then if you ended up with many tokens, you couldn't cash them out. Because if you're able to cash out your tokens, it's gambling, right? And without that, it's just, you know, gaming. And so that was our model. And it was actually a very, very interesting business. It was the most highly concentrated I'd ever been in. Uh, 0.1%, 0.1% of our users were driving 80% of our revenue. Wow. Right? Super, super concentrated. There were also some... It was a little more habitual, and I'll I'll give you the example that really, this was a test that I was firmly against because I was clear it was going to fail, to be clear. And basically, the acquisition team noticed that competitors were offering more free tokens for when you signed up than we were. And they said, hey, we would like to offer instead of 12,500, we would like to offer 50, 100,000, things like that. Seemed like a reasonable test. Of course, the CRM team was very concerned about it because they were worried that 
if you kind of get more aggressive in your acquisition, you're getting less qualified customers and they would miss their metrics. Mm -hmm. So we ended up going with this test and, and the acquisition team sort of slipped in, not only doing you know, the, the values we talked about, but also having a 1 million and 10 million free tokens offer for people mm -hmm. that joined. What turned out happened is people with these larger bank accounts essentially started betting more kind of per spin. They ran out of tokens generally just as quickly, but then they went to, when they went to re-up and buy more tokens, they brought bigger packages. Yeah. So this is one of the rare things that increased your acquisition efficiency and increased your lifetime value. And it was just unique. I, I'd actually never seen that. It's So was the insight there around how people would you know, be more comfortable at that price, at a certain like price point, if that was their entry in. Correct. You actually, you got them comfortable with sort of doing sort of, you know, betting big amounts per spin. Mm -hmm. And then when it came to buying more, they said, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go back to the, you know, dollar blackjack table. I've been playing at the hundred dollar table. So for things like that, because slots and all of that is all, you know, traditionally just been considered gambling. But it really is like the blend of like gambling versus gaming, right? It's like, is there a difference between words with friends or whatever, buying you know, tokens to get to certain things versus playing a slot versus doing whatever it is, right? Did you ever feel like at that time that the type of data that you were getting was giving you insights like into the human psyche of this like piece of it? I mean, it seems like, you know, you would have so much data about like casino behavior. Yeah, we did get a lot of information. You could actually really watch, you know, obviously our, our slots were random, but you could really watch what sort of random, you know, when certain customers took a certain path and had a certain type of winning pattern, you could really see the effect it had on, did they come back the next day? Did they buy more? Oh, right? interesting. Because all the data was there. You could say, wow, for example, if customers had a very unlucky streak kind of right at the beginning, and lost all their tokens pretty quickly, they wouldn't come back because they felt the game was ripping them off. Again, that's always going to happen to some fraction of the customers, right? Because it's random. Yeah. Customers that went, you know, X percent above their initial kind of opening value, even if they ended up losing, they felt like, okay, at least the game was fair. See, that's like one of those things like, you know, you look at like Vegas casinos or something like that, where it's like, if you lose all your money in 15 minutes playing blackjack, like they just give you an extra $25 token or something, right? Or like a buffet, like a bad beat buffet. This is a great idea. Some type of like bad beat thing because that sucks so much. So much, right? Yeah, because you're like, I just came here to play blackjack for four hours and I am out of money in 15 minutes. Exactly. Um, because your minimums are like insanely high. I mean, again, like it's always those type of things, those like especially old school, the slot machine, the casino, really hasn't changed for 50 years, essentially. I mean, there's digitization, but like really more or less, it's, it's pretty similar. And then you have like gaming companies come around. They kind of like essentially disrupt that, yeah. that ecosystem. But you can now have insights into customer behavior. And then you could offer them things that, you know, provide value on stuff. It's like, hey, this is randomized, but like, here's a treat because like that really sucks. Yeah, and actually we did that. We would actually give people essentially the bad B things. And again, because it was tokens, it's not... It wasn't a huge financial burden because we're giving away something that, you know, we didn't have to pay for. Right? Yeah. And so we were able to do those sorts of things to help you know, keep those customers. And I think really every business has those type of things. You have some type of thing that is worth like limited resources or excuse me, worth 
uh, essentially just company resources, but not necessarily a ton of time or effort that you could give to your customers if they have a bad experience or if, you know, something happens that really doesn't actually, you know, impact your bottom line that much, but is at least a show of faith. It's also interesting in, in many, many analyses I've done, getting something wrong with a customer and then fixing it makes them more loyal than if you'd never gotten it wrong in the first place. Yeah. And this, even this, what we're talking about is similar. It's like, you know, they lost a bunch of tokens and then you say, hey, look, I'm just giving this to you. They end up feeling better than someone that would have maybe followed sort of a more average path. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's one of the lessons of Uber that I think we're going to look back on too, is that because of some of the outrage culture of how things are, the company and that sort of stuff, like the outrage around certain things, it's like, we still love a comeback story. And just because things weren't great doesn't mean you can't turn it around. We were talking to a marketer about uh, an airline that one of their colleagues is, you know, running an airline. They're saying that like, essentially it takes like, it took them like four years to like rehaul the internal hardwiring of how they could fix the customer experience. So like they have all these problems, they get slammed on Twitter, they get slammed on all this stuff just constantly. And this person's like, I can't fix all of that because there's so many levels of complexity that have to do with like tons of regulatory issues. So it's just like a slow burn. But you figure like there's brands that are horrible that become great companies. There's brands that have great high NPS scores that become terrible companies. And I think a lot of times we just focus on like, hey, the, you know, the the stretch that you're there that, you know, you get crushed in the news. Well, people are going to go on to the next thing. Yeah, I, I think consumers, if you give them enough time, are actually very forgiving and very reasonable. You just have to sort of do the right thing, acknowledge your mistakes and and address it. Are there any of your campaigns that you've done in your career that are one of your favorites? I described two of them, actually. The one at GSN where we did that acquisition stuff. And then the the Oprah one was another one that we did at Snapfish. Other campaigns that I, I find kind of most elegant, we, we did some at Uber, and I can't really sort of talk too much about them, where what I loved about them most, and this is going to sound a little nerdy, is that they were kind of offline campaigns involving a lot of TV and things like that. But we found a way to track it down to the individual person. Wow. So we actually knew kind of who had seen kind of which ads online and offline, kind of over TV as well as digital, and could really sort of say, okay, now instead of using sort of these attribution models where you sort of like it's super fancy data science math, which I love, uh, we were able to say, hey, these are the folks that saw at least these many spots and this how did they convert versus ones that didn't? Existing customers that saw these things, how did that increase their frequency versus not? How did that shift their brand perception? Because you could actually talk to them and say, hey, do you feel differently about the brand? And we're able to sort of track all these things. And that for me was just kind of so exciting when you kind of have that analytical sophistication and tracking coming into the offline world. You can't just dangle something like that with at least giving like a little bit. But what's like maybe one insight that you can share anything. I mean, that's a that's a huge offline attribution. Is I mean, I'd say one of the number one problems that we have with, with most of the CMOs we talk so, to. I'd say the lag between a change in brand affinity and a change in behavior is three to six months. Hmm. Interesting. And you were in charge of 
driver and rider acquisition, performance marketing, and CRM. Is yeah, that, for North America. For North America. For North America yeah. By the way, I think it's so funny that North America is a segment when a third one of the countries doesn't speak the same language right. as right know. yeah well you know i know it's just one of those funny things i always think like anytime i see like all of these well, actually, like, in uber's defense it actually i should say it was u.s and canada i just okay. i just call it north america but that's fair oh, u.s yeah. canada um, mexico down was handled by the latam team well it's i i just always think that stuff like it's not it mm-hmm. wasn't an indictment of that i just meant in general like i always see the uh like apac and stuff like that right. you're like australia is in the same market and you're like what like yeah. it's just funny culturally you know it's, it's very it's different very different um so do you think that part of the success that uber had was that you had so much money to play with that you could learn with like so many different types of experience or does that come into like paralysis by analysis like is it sometimes too much too much resources i think that's an interesting question. I think the amount of money Uber had allowed Uber to grow very, very quickly, possibly without sort of really understanding what the essentially the market clearing prices are. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're subsidizing drivers by a lot and you're subsidizing consumers by a lot, you don't really know what it would look like if you turned off those subsidies. Totally. Right. Uh, and of course, that was a very rational thing for Uber to do because it's, you know, there's a lot of network, there's a lot of scale benefits, you have competitors coming in and competitors are subsidizing too. You can't sort of unilaterally disarm, but all that money in that market in general actually made it hard to figure out what would happen without all that money in the market. What about, you know, we touched on geography a second ago and and I always thought it was so interesting with a lot of these marketplace businesses that you have so much is location-based. If you have, uh, well, I guess why it's different because your pet is wherever you are. So if you're in Toronto, but your pet is still at home, I, I guess it doesn't necessarily matter as much. But you no, know, you still have a, a two-sided marketplace in whichever city, obviously. You absolutely do, yeah. And it's and you have, whether it's WAG or Uber, you think of the two-sided marketplace in a city, but it's actually not a city. It's like a sub-part of the city. Great point. And then you want to slice it by time of day because your, your pet parents and your walkers Maybe walkers want to kind of happen to be available here, pet parents there, and it's like zip code level. So the whole matching and, and figuring out what to do and how to fix, and your acquisition channels don't work at a zip code level. Even if you, you, know, you, you don't really acquire people in a certain zip code, you, you can try, and, and some of these platforms claim they can, but they can't, right? You fundamentally acquire people at a DMA level. Mm-hmm. That's as refined as you can get, keeping things reasonable. And then you need to have other tools to sort of make those adjustments for whether it's time of day or the sub-geos. I always thought it was funny whenever I would talk to like performance marketers or acquisition marketers and they were structured like in geographical areas and then you have brand, which is like, oh, well, we're doing a regional campaign. So this isn't a brand campaign, right? And I always thought those two things are, are so funny. It's like, but like, you know, the District of Columbia is within the broader landscape. So if you're running, you know, brand ads, people there are going to see it. Like, it, you know, if you're running an ad on the Super Bowl, everyone is going to see it no matter where you're from. And it always felt like there's some level of like weird competition between acquisition and brand. You know, perhaps those two things shouldn't be separate, you know. Uh, in the first place, but I'm curious to what your thoughts are and what you've seen in your career on kind of like best practices of 
how to align, you know, performance and acquisition and brand together. Yeah, I, I think those two things being disconnected is just one of the the areas that marketing as a industry has not yet solved. And there's lots of opinions on all sides and and none of them really kind of seem to work. I, I think one thing I, I will say, it's pretty important to have them be part of the same teams. Companies I've seen where they have the brand team here and the, the performance marketing team here, they end up just being so disconnected. Yeah. The performance marketers like, well, I don't, you know, and maybe there's some brand guidelines floating around. The performance marketers spend all their time trying to work around them because they're like, look, I, I got to hit my numbers. I'm going to do what works. Yeah, maybe it's not quite what you brand person want, but I don't, I don't see you being held to the numbers. So I'm not really going to yeah. do what you say. And the brand folks are saying, hey, look, you know, we, we really need to sort of tell this arc, this, this story and this narrative. But they don't really have, they only have one way to do it with these, you know, sort of brand heavy channels. They're not sort of leveraging in a way the performance marketing side, which is doing billions of impressions. Yep. And so having them sort of unified fairly closely, I think, is, is really, really important. Uh, and finding a way to do that, not sort of having these two leaders who sort of kind of have a, maybe a peace, maybe a war between each other. I had a head of acquisition marketing from a marketplace tell me that this quarter they were only doing regional. I thought that that was really, <laughs> you're shaking your head. And I was like, only regional this quarter, huh? It seemed like it was silly. Is, is that silly? Well, look, it depends. If you're in a marketplace business, you can say, look, imagine like, hey, let's say you don't need any walkers in 80% of your markets, right? Because you have so many walkers. Then you say, well, doing a national walker thing doesn't make sense because 80% of my spend isn't going anywhere. So I'm just going to kind of really focus on some of these regions. It's great. Point. Right. So, so for the marketplace business, again, obviously anytime you narrow the geo, something that gets sort of more expensive on a per unit basis, but if it's only particular geos you need in it, it could make sense if you have that very localized marketplace business. As there's levels of complexity, you've worked for, you know, companies that I don't want to say like are not as complex or extremely complex, but when you have a marketplace like something where, like, you know, we had um, an amazing conversation with Udemy about marketing, where they have all of these courses that they're doing. So you're actually segmenting the market based off of all of these different types of courses. Because if I see a course for, you know, whatever, IT training, I don't need that. But if it's marketing training, maybe I do. Do you think that when you have something like dog walking or like writing, that the level of complexity of types of messaging that you need to make sure that you're hitting a ton of different use cases? Or do you focus on, you know, one or two key themes that you kind of really hit on over and over again? I would say the complexity is around trying to keep everything in balance with all the various tools you have. The core messaging doesn't vary that much, yeah. but it's really who you're trying to talk to, where and how it is. And again, geo, sub-geo, time of day, below zip code, all these things make it just so, so interesting. And, and, and one of the things, like, as I've been thinking about it more, like, we think of these marketplace businesses as kind of being complex, and they are, but some of the learnings that you get from them are actually relevant to even your standard e-commerce business. Like, e-commerce still has supply chains. They still have inventory. Yep. That's kind of supply, right? Yeah. And so, okay, if you have an oversupply of this product, how do you adjust the pricing to sort of maximize it? 
It's even more interesting if that product is going bad, like it's flowers. Yep. Right. So you can't just leave it in a warehouse somewhere. So a lot of companies that you don't think of as marketplace companies actually have a lot of those same dynamics. But the marketers don't always think of them that way. They're just like, okay, I'm just focused on demand. They're not always looking back at like, wait a second, let me understand kind of what my supplier inventory looks like and adjust accordingly. Final piece on that. I, I do want to touch on your time at, at Pro Flowers because one of the things I thought was super fascinating was that you help the company avoid hidden high cost orders. I'm curious to, to what that is and, and what you did. So this was a while ago before there was a lot of sophisticated analytics around. And what was happening at many companies was that a lot of folks were going kind of on averages and not really understand the concept of incremental, right? So let's say, hey, I know a new customer is worth $20, okay? And right now I'm paying $15 per new customer. So you might say, hey, that's great. Let me kind of pay $20 per new customer and I'll get a bunch of new customers. The problem is, and again, it's so obvious now, but this is, this is a yeah, long yeah. time ago, right? Like, yeah, you can get your average up to 20, but how much did you pay for those additional customers that you got from moving from 15 to $20 because now you paid more acquisition costs for everyone. Mm -hmm. And it was turning out that, you know, a new customer is worth in this example, $20. And we were paying like $300 per incremental customer because we were basing on the average and not really realizing that by paying more, we weren't getting that much more, but we were paying a ton more for everything we would have gotten already. It was new and revolutionary at the time. Now it's kind of obvious. Hey, well, you know, <laughs> we stand on the shoulder. Nope. We stand <laughs> shoulders of giants. Yeah, we stand on the shoulders of giants. All right, let's that's get. That's Newton, right? I think that was Newton. Yeah, I think that so. was a quote from Newton. Um, definitely not me. That's for sure. Uh, all right, let's get into the lighting rounds. These questions are fast and easy, just like marketing automation with Pardot. You can go to pardot.com/podcast or learn more about marketing on the world's number one CRM B2B marketing. It's just great. Check out Pardot. We love them. Lightning round questions. Kevin, you ready? I mean, I didn't know this was coming. So yeah, I'm ready. Number one, what's your favorite vacation spot? Hawaii, Big Island, uh, the dry part, Mauna Kea. What is your favorite breed of dog? This is a loaded question. I, I worry what will happen in the office if I, if I kind of give that answer. So I'll just, I'll, I'll go with some basics of doesn't bark a lot, but I'm okay with shedding. Oh, all right. All right. Hypoallergenic, not so much a concern. Whatever, you know. There you go. A little more so. What uh, favorite book or podcast have you read or listened to recently? I would say uh, the Freakonomics podcasts. I enjoy quite a bit. Worst piece of advice you've ever got? Uh, put your head down and do your job. What is the best advice for a first-time CMO? Get to know the business overall, not just marketing. You have to be an expert in all parts of the business. It seems like you're dialed in on the business side of things. Yeah, but I think a lot of marketers, are, especially first time, they're like, okay, I'm going to be an expert on the brand or this. And they don't know sort of the operations and what matters and what really drives things. What are you most excited about for the future marketing? <sighs> the thing I would like to be most excited and I go back and forth is really cleaning up what is the massive, massive amounts of fraud in the digital marketing space. Totally. I'm, I, I've seen estimates that I don't believe. I think it's well over 50% is all fraud. What question do you never get asked? 
that you wish you were asked more often? Uh, what's my favorite cut of steak? <laughs> what is it? Uh, it's it's a ribeye. All right, rib especially the cap, the ribeye, the cap of the rib steak. I think this is my mom's favorite. As is well. it? Is yeah. it? Kevin, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Any final stuff to plug? Everyone should check out Wag Wagwalking.com. Anything else? I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.